0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. I say a great day, in fact, it's been a greatly disgusting day. Many of us watched in horror, as the government made it so much harder for poor people to feed their kids through reducing the income of 55 million people by over £1,000 per year. All the while, the minister responsible was up on stage at the Tory party conference doing a karaoke turn. Stomach-churning stuff, indeed. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, Tonight, we are talking to celebrated and eminent philosopher, Professor A.C. Grayling. We will be discussing his views on the obscene behaviour at the Tory conference and what he thinks of Brexit and why he changed his mind about independence for Scotland and so much more besides. TNT, as you know, as I say every week, stands for The Nation Talks. So we're free, so no license, no problem. Now, to our guest tonight, The Nation Talks to Professor A.C. Greeling. How are you, Anthony?
1: Well, uh, I must say I do grieve tremendously for the tens of thousands of families who have uh, prematurely lost people they they care about loved ones and so on it is absolutely awful and in in a way it's surprising that um, somehow it's become normalized as though so many new infections every day and so many deaths every day don't matter other countries have managed it much much better uh, than we have I have to say so it's been very very sad from that point of view. Personally, however, and I mean, this is an illustration of the fact that it really is an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Uh, I I have rather troglodytic tendencies. I I quite like sort of being cooped up so I can get on with my work. Um, So I I kind of benefited from lockdown. I went into personal lockdown very early and stayed in it for a very long time. Uh, And... um, as a result, it rather worried my publishers, actually, because that became a bit over-prolific during that period. But uh, so from that point of view, it's been, uh, personally anyway, not too bad.
0: And what's your take on the um, Tory party conference? I take it you've been watching odd clip or two, has
1: it? I find it very difficult to, to listen to uh, any of the people uh, in government at the moment. I did try this morning. Uh, I lasted about 10 seconds before I just simply had to turn off because I cannot bear it. But um, I think the most speaking, you know, comment on the Tory party conference is that immediately the conference ended, news came out that Sterling had plummeted. (laughs) And, and, And that about says it all. They're trying to spin the disaster that the country is in at the moment as the plan. You know, we we were warned about shortages. We were warned about problems with uh, um, staffing care homes and HGV drivers, and the impact on the economy, and how there would be, you know, a big impact on farming and on fishing. All these things were the so-called scare stories at the time of the referendum and since. And uh, these uh, sort of brexiteer types uh, in in the far right of the Conservative Party, they all said, "Oh, rubbish! It's just uh, you know just." We're just trying to frighten us. Now they're saying that this is their plan all along and it's a good thing and the economy is on the up because it isn't working. You know, I mean, really, how we can be, you know, it's Orwellian is, is really what it is. It's Orwellian. And, and it is so dismaying. I cannot believe how rapidly the country has collapsed Partly, of course, it's because the, the floorboards, the constitutional arrangements, our political culture in the UK is rotten through and through. And if you go back um, to the 1860s, publication by John Stuart Mill of his book, Representative Government, he acknowledged the fact that our constitutional arrangements are very ramshackle and that they were you know, vulnerable to misuse. But he said, Oh, it doesn't matter because our MPs are gentlemen. Well, that ship sailed a long time ago, <laughs> and now I'm afraid it's on the rocks. I'm mixing my metaphors like mad here, rotten and floorboards and ships on rocks and things, but you get my point anyway.
0: Absolutely. And I think, uh, I mean, it's always been the case that the British Constitution has been a very odd creature indeed. What makes it particularly odd is that Britain has exported constitutions to a whole range of countries, and yet somehow hasn't gotten round to looking at its own uh, house and putting that in order. I mean, if you you go to Barbados, you go to many other countries, you'll find that um, a lot of people, nice people from London went to Barbados and other places and helped people set up really solid constitutions. (laughs) But somehow it never quite happened here. And we're left with this ramshackle, as you say.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's appalling, actually. You know, back up just before the 19, uh, the 2010 election, when Gordon Brown was uh, prime minister, and he, by the way, my favourite prime minister of, of uh, recent times, um, he invited a, a group of people to come to Downing Street and talk about the possibility of uh, a co- codifying our constitution, or uh, in the phrase that people misuse, actually, a written constitution. Um, So I participated in that discussion, and during the course of it, uh, made the suggestion that what we should do is, in order to simplify matters and have a very, very good arrangement, simply take the German basic law, which is fundamentally their constitution, and shrive it of of a few things that are more, you know, kind of suitable to to Teutonic arrangements, because after all, that was something into which uh, a lot of British barristers <laughs> had quite, a, quite an input. So it exactly exemplifies your point that we've done, you know, good, good turn to other countries, other people. However, we've done some of them a bad turn because uh, our problem, I think, in the UK is that we have a first-past-the-post-voting system for the House of Commons. It's the only elected body in the kingdom that has the first-past-the-post arrangement, which, by the way, the Conservative government now wants to extend to mayoral elections and various other ones. But it is a very distorting and a very undemocratic system. Uh, And um, India has got it, Canada has got it, the United States has got it for the House of Representatives. The the, uh, Australians, uh, you know, got rid of theirs and replaced it with something which has the same net effect, which is two party, two main parties or two main political groupings who vie with one another to get their hands on the levers of power. And when they do, what you get in effect is one party state, one party government, mainly, of course, legislating in the interests of its supporters, its faction. And this is very unhealthy. And when you get a a, a government like we've got today, this conservative government, elected on 43% of votes actually cast, representing about 29% of the electorate and a very much smaller proportion of the overall population, and doing what the heck it likes, because it's got 100% of the power in a completely sovereign parliament, unchecked by anything. There's no, no constitutional arrangement which will limit the uh, extent of powers that um, parliament has. You know, so we, we, we've got a rotten system here, and, and we're, we're now witnessing just how rotten it is.
0: Absolutely. It was always there for someone to take advantage of it, but because, as was said earlier, um, The gentleman chose not to do so, but we have a definition on our programme, which you might like. We define the British Constitution as whatever the government of the day with a working majority says it is.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Because it can be changed.
0: We've had an example here today in Scotland where the Supreme Court has overturned uh, the uh, decision by the Scottish Parliament to incorporate the Human Rights Act into Scots law. So the children in Scotland will not be afforded that protection because the Supreme Court says uh, you overstepped uh, your remit, your bailiwick, you straight into areas which are the uh, province only of the UK government, and therefore you can't have that. Now, 129 MSPs voted for it. It was approved by the entire parliament. And here we are. (laughs) The children do not get the protection. Every way you look at it, it looks like a laudable thing to do to protect children. But because it intruded into some rather arcane part of the UK constitution as presently defined, it was unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So they've gone off to think about it again. Mm -hmm. Quite how they'll do that, I'm not sure.
1: Well, I mean, this is a um, a very good example of why it is that uh, Scotland should become independent. Um, I I mean, I I used to be very pro uh, the union. And, and there were two reasons for that. One, one was an emotional reason. My mother's uh, family, I'm, you know, have, I'm half English, quarter Scott, quarter Welsh, which um, I think I once explained to you makes it rather difficult when the rugby six nations is on, <laughs> but, but I, I managed somehow. My mother's maiden name is Burns. Her birthday is the 25th of January. So it was always in our family, we had to be sure to have recovered enough from Hogmanay by the 25th of January so that we could uh, celebrate it properly. But in so it was kind of an emotional thing. I thought, you know, we're all in together. I'm I'm from all parts of the the British Isles and uh, why split up. And while we were in the EU, it made no difference because the the borders don't count for anything. Although I think I wasn't really thinking clearly enough about the impact uh, on Scotland of decisions being made in Whitehall that really regarded Scotland as a kind of side issue, marginal. And that I think now that that is so clear, and you've just given an example of something where where that matters. But especially because uh, Scotland voted to stay in the EU, and it is being dragged hither and thither by uh, an English party mainly, which uh, doesn't really care about Scotland; it only really cares about you know keeping the union for cosmetic reasons. I, I think uh, I, I now changed my mind, and I think really uh, you know Scotland should bring on its its referendum soon get out and and get into the EU. I mean, after all, half of the EU uh, member states have populations which are are similar or smaller than Scotland's population. Half of the member states of the EU have GDPs smaller than Scotland. Scotland could be a very, very flourishing member of the EU and should be, in my view, because it wants to be. And it is a, a nation which has had long, long, you know, deep connections with um, the the, the continent. And it's very natural to to Scotland, I think, to be part of it. So I'd be extremely keen to to see Scotland become independent, become a member state of the EU, and I'm I'm migrating north when that happens.
0: Well, you'd be very, very welcome, I can tell you. And I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking for everyone watching and listening to. One of the difficulties is that the Scottish government in particular feels that it ought to wait until Boris Johnson gives it permission to have a referendum, not something that has been a discernible um, appetite uh, amongst the, uh, the cabinet ministers, particularly recently. What's your view on that? Should, 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 is it preferable to wait until somebody gives you permission or should you say, look, uh, we've made up our minds, we really want to uh, do this now?
1: Well, for one thing, of course, the, the, there is a um, debate about the constitutional propriety of uh, um, the Scots parliament deciding unilaterally to hold a referendum. You know, it, it's, it's not impossible that it's constitutionally in order for it to do it. But my view is that quite independently of whether that is so, it, it cannot surely in all moral conscience be uh, something that the Scots are not entitled to do. I mean, this really is a, a matter for Scotland and, and the Scottish people. And they've shown an appetite, a consistent appetite over the last half century or more right from the 1979 devolution referendum, you may remember, which, for which there was a majority, but the threshold wasn't met and so on. So you know, there's been a long-standing uh, appetite for independence uh, in a large section of the Scottish population. And it has been pragmatic considerations, I think, which have tipped the balance uh, pro-union. Uh, now that picture surely m- must be changing. I say surely, although I'm, I'm minded that, that my friend and colleague uh, Dan Dennett, the uh, American philosopher, always points out that when the word "surely" appears in an argument, that's the weakest part of the argument. <laughs> so perhaps I should withdraw that word. But but you know I, I do feel um, I, I do feel that it, it, by now, at any rate, it must be the case that uh, people would like. to to comment on the situation and to uh, say again, think again, perhaps change their decision from
0: 2014. So let me put you on the spot then. If there was a referendum coming up sometime soon, next year or the year after, would you join in the, the support for independence?
1: Yes, yes, I would absolutely. um much as I did back in 2014, and I was still in my sort of unionist uh, um, mood, not conservative and unionist I point out, but, uh, and so I joined in a, a little bit with the campaign then to try and keep the union, and in fact, we had this symbolic thing of building a can of stones on the border, which was going to be a sort of buckle on the belt to, to keep us all together. And as I say, I mean, my main reason was an emotional one really. And also the thought that uh, because we were in the EU, it really made no difference. And that ultimately, as the EU itself progresses and it will mature and develop, you know, I'm very, very, very strongly in favor of the EU. I think it's a tremendous imaginative project for peace, for unity, for cooperation, development. It's very flawed. It's got a lot of problems. It needs uh, reform in, in a number of different respects, um, but it's a work in progress. You know, you can't expect a five-star hotel when you've only got three stories built and the Ooh. scaffolding is still on. So, uh, but we should be part of that story and and contributing to it. Uh, and and you know, I think that the UK in has been despite all the rhetoric and and the politicking and the whining and moaning from the UKIP people and the Brexiters and so on, has actually been quite a good member of the EU in a number of respects. So quietly, uh, the diplomatic and civil service aspect of things, you know, I I I think we made good contributions and many of the smaller countries in the EU quite appreciated the UK's presence as one of the big uh, economies in the EU because we were pragmatic and, and and moderate about a number of things. Um, and, and, that, and that's a good thing. Quite a lot of that good sense could be um, brought to bear by uh, an independent Scotland as a member of the EU. So I think that would be a very good thing. But, you know, you look at the situation in Northern Ireland and Ireland, both, both being part of the EU meant there was no problem. There was no problem about a border. There was peace. There was the, the possibility of the Good Friday Agreement really turned on the fact that we were all part of the EU. Now that, that uh, um, this ridiculous Brexit thing that has happened, it's thrown up all the, all the difficulties, all the tensions, again, familiarly there. And it has made it a, a real problem, a real stone in the shoe um, for, for Scotland, dragged out of the EU, wanting to be in it, wanting to make a contribution to it. Uh, And and they they should be there. That's my, uh, so yes, my answer to your question is yes, absolutely, I would campaign like mad in support of it. I
0: I know you'd be very welcome as a member of, if there is a team that that is put together to do that, I'm sure you'd be very welcome. How did we get to this position? How, How did we end up with Brexit? Because anyone, frankly, listening to you tonight, it seems to me, couldn't help but think, what madness, brought us to this point? Because your points in support of the EU are, are so straightforward, they're so clear, and yet what form of collective madness brought us to this sorry state that we're in now?
1: Well, of course, as you know, everything is multi-causal and we have had a, a, a massive conspiracy by the white wing, and especially tabloid press, uh, anti-EU. So, you know, a, a worse than a drip feed, it's been a kind of, I don't know, tsunami of, of toxic uh, anti-EU rhetoric for decades. Um, and it's been quite deliberate. Uh, you know, it's out there in the public domain that Rupert Murdoch, for example, when asked why he was against the EU, said, if I go into Downing Street, I'm listened to. If I go into Brussels, they don't bother taking any notice of me quite properly. <laughs> so, it, uh, the, you know, there, there, it's, it's out in the public domain. Also, I I think, um, in addition to that, the people who were always against the um, EEC and the EU, so on both left and right, you have to remember that there was a a bunch of people like Tony Benn and uh, uh, and, uh, Peter Shaw, and others on the left of politics back in the 70s who were against um, uh, being any part of the EEC. So there there has been a left-wing anti-EU thing, because they regard it as a great big capitalist conspiracy. And there's been a right-wing thing because they regard it as a great big socialist conspiracy. And of course, they in particular want to protect their uh, money in tax havens and things. And I think one of the triggers for really pulling the stops out and, and forcing Campbell to hold a referendum was the imminence of the um, new EU regulations about tax havens. That that, that was uh, you know, one of the sort of triggering factors. But they saw an opportunity. They saw an opportunity in a number of ways, which is that with this, this uh, um, the complacency that had been generated in the country, with the fact that the far right of the Conservative Party had a hold over Campbell, because he had a small majority, and they said to him, unless you promise us a referendum, we're not gonna, you know, we're gonna be awkward. The Awkward Squad, you remember what John Major said about them back in the 90s. And um, so they had him over a barrel on that. And they saw an opportunity. And the opportunity was to uh, capitalize on this long standing anti EU rhetoric, which had never been counted by any of the major political voices in the UK. You go to any European country, you see the EU flag flying alongside the national flag. In London, I remember once looking around and, and trying to find an EU flag, and I found two. I found one outside one of the big five-star hotels, and I found the EU flag outside the EU offices in Smith Square. But otherwise, you just you, you hardly see it, and, and and therefore there was always this kind of sense that we weren't you know only had one foot in it, and politicians didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to you know wake the dogs uh, on it, because if they did, of course they would get the tabloid press absolutely dumping on them if they ever said anything which was tremendously pro-EU. So I think the the atmosphere had built to that kind of storm point where the Brexiters thought they had an opportunity. And I point out to people that uh, in the referendum in 2016, given that that many people didn't even bother to to vote because they didn't think that we would be so stupid as to leave the EU, they didn't even bother to vote. But it was only 37% of a restricted, that is to say a normal GE uh, general election uh, franchise instead of a, a proper franchise for something so consequential. The kind of franchise you had in Scotland in 2014 would have been more appropriate. And all our expats as well should have been given a say because they were very materially affected by the outcome. Had all that happened, had we had a proper referendum franchise, there wouldn't have been Brexit. But as it was, we had a restricted franchise, and 37 percent of that electorate voted leave 37 percent representing about 26 percent of the population. Now, be- because we have this uncodified constitution, even though the referendum was only advisory, Campbell, trying to up the stakes, had said after the referendum bill was uh, passed into uh, law in 2015, made a political commitment to abide by the outcome. And what was the outcome? of actual votes cast, which by no stretch of anybody's imagination, unless you are a Brexiter, you know, far right Brexiter or a far left Brexiter, is a legitimate reason to, to leave the European Union. At no point, there has never been a debate in parliament on the question, shall we take the advice of an advisory referendum in which 37% of those to whom we gave a vote said they wanted to leave. That, just, that debate has never held in the UK Parliament. And I, I have been, you, you can tell from the fact that I can, you know, I can really start ranting here. But yeah, I'm so angry about the fact that it's it is a theft. It, you know, it's been stolen from us. Our freedom of movement, our EU citizenship, our part in this, this great uh, um, project of building something so wonderful. And the fact that our, you know, Uh, Almost everything about our artistic and and, uh, scientific and cultural heritage is European. You know, all our music and our art and everything that we so love, we've been part of of that. And to be, you uh, you know, I don't know, regarded as as, as something which is, uh, you know, fog in channel, continent isolated kind of attitude to to things, it, it just seems to me to be so petty, so backward looking. And... Where are we now? We are back in the 1970s. Remember the heyday of unburied dead, piles of rubbish in the streets, three-day week, uh, power cuts. How, you know how long before we start having power cuts, given the quarrel oh, we're having with France now about energy? So. Well, I,
0: actually, when you when you look at the Tory Party conference, we run the risk of being rendered back to the 1870s almost, with no regard for people who are, who are poor. Uh, disadvantaged. Um, that seems terribly Victorian to me. Uh, you know, with a the, the governing elite that cares little for anyone else except for themselves. But you, you, you mentioned uh, the, the the tabloids and the media uh, being being very focused on getting a Brexit result. For for a lot of people, the BBC seemed to be party to that process too. I mean. I certainly was aware of Nigel Farage appealing constantly and consistently, telling me that the EU had done this and would do that. Um, I didn't read too much about what he said, but I kept seeing him on the BBC.
1: Yes, uh, alas, uh, and since the uh, not just since the referendum, but even before, as you correctly say, there was this continual, you know, bias in the direction of amplifying the anti-EU voice out of all proportion. Because if you look at opinion polls, you know, how much does the EU matter to you and how much you bothered about it? Nothing. You know, the, the line on the graph is right at the bottom. are many, many, many other things that people are much more interested in until the time of the referendum. Then, of course, interest shot right up. So uh, in the period up to the referendum, in the years before the referendum, that voice, the UKIP voice, was amplified by the way the BBC does things. You know, there's 99.9% of doctors say vaccination is good for you, and then there's a couple mad, you know, 0.1%. And you that have them both on the BBC as giving the opposite points of view. And this distorts things a little bit. I think there should be much more, I don't know, a reflection of, of um, preponderance in, in views. Obviously, we should hear the alternative view always. There's a great principle in law, isn't there? Audi alter and party. I'm always hear the other side of the story, but not as if everything is 50-50. And if you present the uh, point of being in the EU as a 50-50 point, you really are going to distort matters. And you're dead right. That happened. But since the referendum, the BBC... You know, I'm a great, great admirer of it. I I think the quality uh, of um, production in documentaries and drama and uh, comedy and so on is is extraordinary. And when you think of some of the comedy on the BBC, you know, it can be pretty far out and, and quite challenging. And that's great. That's as it should be, you know. But BBC News, that has been a deep disappointment. I mean, I'm filled with dismay at the way that they have become party to a kind of Bread and circuses uh, agenda. You know they're distracting the population, not examining and challenging what's really happening uh, in our country. And they have been so on side with Brexit. And I know that there was a discussion. In fact, um, before the referendum, the person who was appointed to edit BBC News and the flagship programme was somebody who had been a, uh, an editor on the Telegraph. So, you know, there had been a long-standing um, sort of political uh, issue about edit- editorial. Policy at uh, Radio Four News, but after the referendum, a decision was taken. The referendum has been held. Brexit has been chosen by the people. You know, by all 26% of the population of the islands. Therefore, we we we, we broadcast on that basis. We don't rerun the argument. We don't have a discussion. And, and you know what? When you think about it, in the autumn of 2019, before the general election of of 2019, we who had campaigned against Brexit came this close to stopping it, this close. If only the opposition parties had not agreed to a general election, we would very, very probably have got our second referendum in 2020, and we would probably be safely in the EU now, not faced with all this nonsense that we're facing. Uh, and uh, it is just, it's one of those you know, awful accidents of history that the people, the Lib- Liberal Democrats thought that they were on a roll. Jeremy Corbyn saw that it was the last throw of the dice for him. Um, everybody thought that the uh, two years be- that had elapsed since the Theresa May election had uh, shown up the weakness of the conservatives and the improbabilities of, of Brexit. And nobody imagined that a relatively small shift of uh, in the percentage share of the vote would as the first past the post system does have this tipping point effect, this cascade effect of producing a huge Tory majority on a tiny little shift of the percentage vote, giving them 100% of the power to do what the heck they like. No plan, no roadmap, no thought, no intelligence. This is what the least intelligent government (laughs) of my lifetime or of any that I've ever known outside North Korea, you know, <laughs> ever. Uh, and, and it's just astonishing. I mean, well, one example you raised a little bit earlier about the cutting of the um, 20 pound a week uplift and plunging people into even deeper poverty. I mean, how unintelligent is that? Even if you were just self interested, you would not want to increase the rich poor gap because. Perceived injustice in society is dangerous. That's when revolutions happen. That's when people get very, very angry when they start to suffer and they can't feed their kids. So to be doing this is, you know, poking the tiger. I mean, it it really is an unintelligent thing to do. But so much of what's happening at the moment just exemplifies complete lack of of, uh, uh, intelligence.
0: Do you think we're heading towards some sort of Civil disobedience. Do you think that's a possibility?
1: Oh, I, I definitely do think that it's a possibility. Uh, and I, I would, in one way, I would be very sorry to see it because I should much prefer, of course, you know, everything to be done in a in a sensible, calm, mature-minded kind of way. But uh, alas, you know what Mark Twain said about arguing with a fool. You know, if you argue with a fool, it ma- makes you look like one. Or um, you get into a fight with somebody, you end up, you know wrestling with him on the ground as well. And, and when you've got a government like this, in, and the situation is as it is at the moment, the, the, the prospects for, uh, you know, rationality breaking out and, and real hope dawning seem so limited. For example, if, if the Labour Party, the Labour Party has no hope of winning an overall majority in the House of Commons, you know, but in order to do that, they would have to be winning big in Scotland and they're not going to. So they have no hope of it. If they were sensible and rational, they would team up with the uh, Lib Dems and the Greens and Plaid and SNP. And they would say, we've got to get rid of this Johnson outfit. And we've got to think again about how we organize ourselves here. We've got to think about some key constitutional matters. The key constitutional matter, by the way, is electoral reform. Because if we had a proportional representation system for the House of Commons, we would get a a much more reflective, much more representative spread of opinion, preferences, interests in the country, very likely coalition government. In that coalition government, there would be Lib Dems, uh, Greens, perhaps SNP. And they would say, we need to be adjusting our relationship with Europe. And if we're going to rejoin the EU uh, single market and customs union, why not just be part of the EU so we're not just rule takers, but rule makers as well, that that kind of trope. So, you know, that, that that would be the sensible thing. And it could happen in a sentence. And the sentence is, we, the Labour Party, are going to team up with our fellow in parties in opposition and we're going to change the game here. But somehow or other, this... Um, deficit of, of uh, IQ that we're talking about in government seems to have somehow got into the water supply of, in Whitehall anyway, or in politics somehow. Uh, not, not in Scotland, I have to say, but down, down here in the South it has. Uh, and, and so, so there doesn't seem to be any hope. And when there's no hope, when there are greater divisions, when there's more perceived injustice, when things are going wrong, then the risk of civil disobedience, of of real uh, problems breaking out uh, become much heightened. And I remember some years ago, in fact, I think I wrote a piece about a tanker strike that happened, what was it, about 10 years ago, 11, 12 years ago, and petrol supplies dried up in the petrol stations. There were no deliveries to supermarkets. And I remember uh, writing, how long would it take if the supermarket shelves were there before gangs of people started to roam the streets, breaking into people's houses looking for tins of baked beans because they are really hungry, the veneer of civilization is paper thin, and you press it press matters too far, uh, it, you know anything could happen.
0: It, it, yes, it does seem really alarming when you look at what's happening, and and the way it appears to be intensifying. It's not as if you know the government is saying, "Look, we've probably made a mistake here." Each day brings a new. I was going to say obscenity or outrage, but it it sometimes feels a bit like that. But it is very perplexing why Labour haven't jumped on this enough. I mean, I can't believe, when I look at the opinion polls, Anthony, that the Tory party is still running ahead of of Labour. Because you would think under any set of normal circumstances, the Labour party would be at least 10 points ahead right now, without doing very much, just because people would be so outraged. Um, why do you think that is? Why why is the Labour having no traction to speak of?
1: Well, here's he the problem, uh, that, that the centre-left of politics in, in the UK is very divided, and the Labour Party is itself internally very, very divided. The Conservative Party is, like all political parties, itself a federation, but it does one thing well, and that is that it stays cohesive publicly and at election time, and and that is why on a minority of, of vote it can get a majority of seats in the House of Commons, because all the rest of, of the political spectrum is broken up and fragmented. You look at the polls at the moment; they're running about forty percent, forty-two percent conservatives, uh, and and that means sixty percent, fifty-eight percent, all the other parties. Now, if all the other parties were one party, then there would be a huge, uh, you know, uh, overwhelming majority against the Conservatives. But this, these divisions, these splits, this fragmentation is part of the problem. But the problem for the Labour Party itself, I think, is this. In, in my view, uh, Kiestama is a decent person uh, and uh, a very well-intentioned person. There will be those who say that he lacks charisma, he doesn't have those great leadership qualities that are needed to to inspire people and so on, and there may be a measure of truth in that. He decided when he became leader of the Labour Party to try to present as a a very sensible, very sort of mature uh, political leader by not attacking the government just because it was the government and because it was a different party, but agreeing with whatever was right and criticising whatever was wrong and to do it in a kind of responsible way unfortunately in our first past the post by you know bipolar um, political situation that just simply doesn't doesn't percolate out to the general public it doesn't wash with the general public uh, you know to have something much much more robust to have a clear simple strong hope giving message which labor simply doesn't have i mean if you were to ask me what labor party policies are i'm afraid i would not tell you even though you know, I've been in and out of the Labour Party more times than, you know, you've been in and out of your your, loo. <laughs> so, you know, but I, I couldn't tell you now what, what, what that is. And, and, and that's completely wrong. Also, you know, 48% of the actual votes cast in the referendum were by Remain's, okay? 37% of the total electorate voted leave. And you have to ask yourself, those people who didn't go out to vote, isn't it a pretty reasonable assumption that at least most of them were either indifferent or happy with the status quo and that if we had stayed in the eu it wouldn't have bothered them now out there therefore is a natural majority for some leader to stoke up to persuade to speak to to to, to bring into the camp and you know What what Labour is doing is saying, oh, well, we'll we'll go along with Brexit. We'll embrace Brexit. This is Ed Mitterband. Uh, We'll make it better. We'll try and, you know, reorganise our relationship with Europe. Simply not good enough. It has to be clear and definite. It has to be looking at the facts in the face. Here we are, nine, ten months in since Brexit started. It hasn't even properly begun yet because the government have deferred all the other customs, dues and things because of the mess that we're in. Um, they were meant to happen now in October, some of them, more in January. They've all been deferred until the summer next year. Your point about every day there's some new problem, uh, you know, killing pigs and, and now dumping milk we see in today's news. I mean, all, all the problems affecting all sectors of our economy. What's going to make them better? You know, these visas were offered HGV drivers until Christmas. Well, what would happen on Christmas Day? Would there suddenly be miraculous birth? Of a, a, a million HGV driver messiahs, you know, I don't know what they were thinking of. They got a princely twenty-seven applications for people to come and drive trucks in the UK as a result of that initiative. But you're dead right; it's not no, nothing going to change. So the Labour Party are not being clear; they're not giving a lead. And I think there's, the country is still recovering from Corbyn. And more, so, whatever you think about Corbyn personally and his his principles, and I always used to think that if Jeremy Corbyn didn't exist, he should be invented because you needed a Jeremy Corbyn on the left of the Labour Party on the back benches. But it was a dreadful mistake, you know, perhaps to have him as leading the Labour Party because it made the party so toxic. I mean, how how many people didn't vote Labour in 2019 because they were worried in case Labour won? You know, that that, that was a, a real barrier. And it takes time. to to wash out the effect of of something like that, of the mistrust that people have in the political party. So that's a complicated answer to your question. But I think think the main burden of the answer is that the, the center left is so divided and it needs to come together. And if only one could bang enough heads together. I mean, after all, the Lib Dems and the Greens and others have said they will work together. They will make some kind of an alliance for the next election. And it's Labour who are holding out
0: I have no means of knowing this, but I suspect if Nicola Sturgeon was approached the right way, she'd be more than happy to throw in mm-hmm. her, her sixpence worth with, with whatever it is, with, with, uh, if, she, if there was some commitment made on, a, say, for example, a referendum, which would be within the power of the, of the next prime minister. Um, I don't think that would be terribly difficult to negotiate. It strikes me as a very simple thing to do, but it would have to be done by somebody who had a statesmanlike approach. Mm-hmm. Not a, dare I say, it, a politician's approach, yeah. uh, because a statesman tends to look at the further down the pike, as the Americans say, mm-hmm. uh, and assume that they're yeah. going to get a few buffets along the way. There'll be a few um, bumps on the on the tarmac. Yeah, that's life. You just have to persist and get on with it and be and be committed. Uh, but I don't get any sense of that right now. Uh, it's a slightly worrying.
1: Well, one, one slightly good thing is that I think Labour is open to uh, another referendum in, in Scotland. I, as I understand it, some of the noises... No, that
0: they not, not really. I mean, it's very odd. I, I I have never been able to understand the Labour Party's position. I feel a bit like you do about <laughs> about the Labour Party generally. Uh, I mean, having studied it over the years, I just find it incredibly confusing. Some of them say things like um, senior people. In fact, ex-First Ministers say, well, we should really be looking at independence and having a a view on the Constitution. Others say, well, I think that's something we could consider in due course. Others say, I'm totally opposed to the whole idea, and it's all got up by the SNP, and okay, they've been lucky to win a few elections, but we shouldn't take any notice of that. Uh, All very confusing, and the result of that confusion, as you pointed out, is to make the electorate say, well, if you haven't made up your mind, I've made up my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not supporting somebody who vacillates. Uh, And uh, you can understand why they feel that way in some respects.
1: Oh, I do. By the way, on on that point uh, about um, Scottish independence, uh, I I take the view that if Scotland were to vote to be independent and were to uh, join the EU, and the EU, of course, have already signaled that they would be open-armed about this, I think it would have a very, very good effect on the rump of the UK. It would certainly wake a lot of people up in England. Uh, already sentiment has changed in Wales, and um, there are people in Cornwall who are talking about let's have a Celtic Federation <laughs> back in the EU. and I mean, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful, imaginative um, gesture, but would be very difficult to arrange. But it would have a very good effect uh, on England, and I think it would be. The, the, there is a quick route back into the EU for all of us. If we could get that uh, electoral alliance by the opposition parties, if they could bring in PR, if we could have a reformed parliament with a coalition government, that coalition government would be quite likely to be more receptive to a demand for another say on European membership, because there would be Greens and Lib Dems who are committed to, to, to that anyway. Uh, so that, that would be the short route back in, into the EU. but. If, if the long route is the one that's taken, and by the way, I think it's inevitable that the nations occupying the Western Isles of uh, Europe will all be part of the European Union before the mid-century, whatever happens, just out of just sheer reality and geopolitics and so on. But I would rather it happen now so that this generation, my students, this generation can have what we had, which was the ability to you know, be anywhere in Europe and to take part in that great adventure. I, I, I hope you're right. I'd like to think you're right.
0: Um, I, I know I was speaking to somebody recently who is moving, uh, doing a removal to uh, to Spain. And uh, he was saying that it's horrendous. Everything that used to be straightforward is now incredibly complicated. He was sent, for example, a power of attorney letter entirely in Thailand. Spanish, uh, and given 24 hours to complete it um, because the Spanish agent will only accept uh, Spanish documentation. Mm. Now, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Spanish expression for power of attorney. Uh, he certainly wasn't. <laughs> so he was faced with a, a bunch of documents which he really couldn't understand and therefore couldn't complete and needed help. Uh, um, luckily there's a facility on, on the word um, Microsoft Word that allows you to translate completely from one (laughs) to the other. I didn't know about it until he told me. But the the, the, the essential point here is that uh, he was told that this is all necessary because the UK is regarded as a third country. Mm -hmm. If you're a third country, you're treated a bit like, I guess, Indonesia or Uruguay or likewise. You know, you're not part of the team, therefore, by necessity, you need to jump several hurdles. But as he said, it's 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 a chastening experience to learn that this only became necessary on the 31st of December last year. Prior to that time, he, he could have done what he wanted to do effortlessly. Yeah. There would be no, no troubles. And then, and then to cap it all off, he was told me, <laughs> the Spanish authorities said, well, you realise that um, your material is subject to VAT. <laughs> he said, "It's a couch, <laughs> nonetheless. It's VATable in our opinion, and you you owe us thirty percent on it." So, how
1: conventional exporters cope with this
0: is mind boggling.
1: I don't know. You know what? What I, I think as all this accumulates, uh, eventually we get to the tipping point where people say, "This is just stupid. This is ridiculous." You know, we're really you know we've got to think again got to think again.
0: We've only got 15 minutes left, Anthony. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, What what drew drew you to the the, the groves of academe? What was it that motivated
1: you? Well, I suppose it was a a lucky accident in the following sense that uh, my father was working uh, abroad in um, what is now Zambia and Malawi, uh, right tucked away in in landlocked uh, in the middle of Africa. And um, when, and I so I was born and brought up out there, uh, you know, I'm minded of what the Duke of Wellington replied to somebody who said, oh, you were born in Ireland, so that makes you Irish. And he said, well, the fact that I was born in a stable doesn't make me a horse. So <laughs> there we were. We were. And, and the, the bit of Africa that we were in, and Northern Rhodesia and Iceland as was, they were expat places. They weren't colonies like Kenya or Southern Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe. Well, a lot of people went out to settle and to farm and, and to live and, and make a life. But we, my dad was out there on, you know, and we moved around quite a lot. And anyway, the thing is that, that when you're living in Africa, you can't go for country walks because you get eaten by lions. So you get rather stuck indoors and, and have to read. So I became a, a very earnest uh, uh, reader and, and SWAT. We had a set of encyclopedia at home, which I loved, I read and reread and reread any number of times. Uh, when I was a little boy uh, and got fascinated by these, the portraits in sort of sepia tint of these magnificent looking Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, really wanted to know what they were all about. And at the age of 12, I was given a uh, ticket for the grown-up part of the library in the little town where we lived, a town called Indola. And this library was very eccentric in its collection. Because it had in it a, a complete set of the works of Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett, famous translation of, of Plato. Left by some, you know, uh, provincial administrator who had been sent out from England to, to run the place and who promptly died of some tropical disease, leaving all his books to this little library. And I took down a volume and opened it at the first page of one of the very early dialogues of Plato's called The Carmedes and, and read it. And I was bowled over by it. I mean I was bowled over by the fact that these great iconic figures of our civilization could devote themselves to exploring ideas and and thinking about life and you know being interested in philosophy and from that moment on I decided that that's what I wanted to do and to my very great delight uh, I discovered almost uh, at the same time but again very early because I remember I bought at a village fete for sixpence, a copy of G.H. Lewis's biographical history of philosophy, which I, I devoured so many times that eventually it fell apart. I still got it, but it's all glued together with cellidate. <laughs> uh, that, that when you're interested in philosophy, you've got to be interested in everything. You've got to, you've got to you know, uh, know about the past and be interested in history and want to find out about science and about politics. And you know, it's a license to stick your nose into everything. And it's an encouragement to do so. So it's a very embracing enterprise. And somehow or other, I had this, this, you know, great desire to try to make sense of things and understand and find out what people thought and said. So I got stuck into that, and have uh, devoted my, my life therefore to something which I find exhilarating. And it's equally um, exhilarating to try to communicate some of this, you know, to put some of this into the public conversation because there are so many good ideas that, you know, people would be interested to know about. But but also uh, in in the hope that one would um, uh, slightly counter that that thing. You know, Bertrand Russell's remark that most people would rather die than think, and most people do, you know, to try to to limit the number of people who who die thinking, at least. Well,
0: it's a very laudable aim. Uh, Now, you have another book coming out soon, is that right?
1: Yes, I do, yes. I've got a book coming out. It's it's going to be published um, officially in February, but uh, proof copies of it are being sent to journalists and uh, and politicians and so on in advance of the climate change conference in Glasgow in November. This is because part of the book addresses the question of uh, the climate emergency that we're in. The book is actually about the question whether it's going to be possible to get the, the world community to work together to deal with three really important challenges that the world is facing, one being climate the other being the fact that the r- incredibly rapid development of, of various technologies AI for example of uh, uh, completely autonomous weapon systems is another brain chip interfaces to uh, in, in the first instance of course to help with things like epilepsy and Parkinson's disease and uh, and depression but you can see how brain chip Uh, technologies could do more. They could be mood regulating or change memories. And, you know, we need to think a bit about whether, how far we want to go with that and how we manage it when we do. So technological change and gene editing, for example, already uh, both the uh, United States of America and China publicly stated that they want to try to edit uh, genes in breeding up soldiers who need very little sleep and who are super intelligent and super fit and et cetera. Well, I mean, you know, this is Aldous Huxley's brave new world Mm -hmm. coming into reality already. We need to think about these things. So, And then the third thing of course is the deficit of of justice and of human rights in so many parts of the world. Uh, The the tremendous gap between rich and poor, the fact that that, uh, human rights violations are so commonplace uh, in our world. And it's that third difficulty which makes it very hard for the other two problems, the climate problem, the technology problem, to be managed, because all those stresses and strains politically, internal to nation states and between uh, states, results in competition. And um, the, the, the fact that uh, no one country wants to fall behind economically by doing more on emissions of of, uh, CO2 if other countries are not doing it and therefore getting an advantage industrially and economically. You know, so all all these things are a problem. So the book addresses that. Is there a way of trying to get worldwide agreement on dealing with our problems? And uh, I come up with a a, a suggested solution, which I acknowledge in the book is a, a little bit idealistic, but at least it is one. And I'm going to have to leave it up to uh, listeners to find out what it is for themselves. A nice cliffhanger there. (laughs) What's the book called? It's called For the Good of the World. For the Good of the World. Uh, And the publishers? Uh, The publishers are one world. One world. Very, very (laughs) (laughs) aptly. In fact, I've done with them. It's not not a a, series of sequel, but... I've been uh, writing with them um, a series of books which address questions about democracy and constitutionality. So I did a book called Democracy and Its Crisis a couple of years ago, which discusses the 2016 referendum and the Trump election, both of which I think we really need to think about how um, social media was used and and how lying has become, you know, the new truth and, you know, how uh, political processes have been distorted and mismanaged and how, Democracies need to to think more clearly about it. So I did a follow-up book to it called The Good State in which I talked a bit about what what, what a a constitutionally mature state should be from the point of view of really making it uh, true that government is for all the people, that government transcends politics to enough of a degree to be inclusive and really in the interests not of a political faction, not of your voters, but of everybody in the country. You know, when, when um, um, Abraham Lincoln famously in November of 1863 gave his wonderful speech, very short, wonderful speech at Gettysburg Cemetery, and he defined democracy as government of the people, by the people, for the people. Now, if you analyze that, the first uh, occurrence of people, the word people, and the third occurrence of the word people mean the, the whole population. But the second occurrence by the people, government by the people, there, the word people refers to men, men who are white and who own property, because only male white property owners had the vote in 1863. So you can be kind of fooled into thinking that, uh, you know, you're vaunting democracy. We think we've got a democracy in the UK. Well, we don't. In fact, we've got this dreadful electoral system for one thing, no codification of our constitutional limits to powers for another thing. And it's these things that have to be remedied. And that book is a, an attempt to do that. And this, uh, um, the solution to these problems that the world faces now, are very intimately connected with having real democratic representation so that the interests of the people can properly be addressed.
0: How would you describe? the UK right now? Obviously, it's not a democracy, as you say, in the, in the accepted sense. What
1: is it? It's an oligarchy, really. It's, or, or even you might even use uh, Lord Helsin's description, which he gave back in, a, in a, a lecture, BBC lecture, back in the 1970s, of an elective dictatorship. Because once you've got a majority in the House of Commons, you have total power. You can do what you like. There are no constraints. There's no, there are no limits. The only limits had been moral ones. I mean if you think back to the days of Macmillan and uh, Wilson and um, Roy Jenkins, our, our great admirer of Roy Jenkins as the Home Secretary, uh, the, the, these were people with some principle. These were people who wanted to take the, e, uh, the UK into the EEC as it then was because they had witnessed Europe in the war. I often say to people, Go on YouTube and look at two minutes footage of Europe in 1945 and ask yourself is an internally divided, internally competitive, conflictual Europe, as it has been for hundreds of years, is that what you want? Or do you want all the nations of Europe come together, work together, cooperate, try and build something? Following up on a very, very astute um, insight from Cobden and Bright back in the 19th century, the great free traders. Tom Paine, back in the 18th century, said the same thing, that if you make countries so intimately connected with one another through trade, they will never go to war with one another. And a very, very astute remark. And the founders of the steel and coal community, EEC, and ultimately the EU, were wonderfully imaginative in, in that way. So we're back to the Brexit thing. But I do think we should be part of that. Well, I
0: think most people would agree with that. And they will probably agree with your description of the UK as well. Uh, we're almost out of time. Is, are there any final messages you would like to give to the audience tonight?
1: Well, uh, to, to the audience in Scotland, I would say, um, uh, vote, <laughs> get out, get into the EU. That's what I would say. Uh, and to everybody else, I would say, uh, you know, we're, we're living through um, rocky times. It's not just the UK is a particular basket case at the moment. You know, It really is collapsing around its own ears and, and it's it's very very sad that 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 is so because you know there are good things uh, um, about uh, about us that, that we you know ha- might be able to offer if we had an opportunity to do so. But at the moment, the floorboards are collapsing underneath us, and we're in a terrible state. I know there are other countries around the world, Hungary and Poland in Europe, for example. Uh, I don't know what they are. Um, you know, my brother lives in in Australia, uh, and I love Australia. I love I love going there and, and visiting there. Um, I know there are some people who are not too happy with the, the government there at the moment. Um, being unhappy with the government is, is probably you know, a good thing, uh, wh- wherever you, you are. But the world in general is in a, in a difficult kind of state. And when you look at, at international relations, when you look at the saber-rattling, China sending its fighter aircraft into Taiwan airspace, and you know a lot of the tensions are around the world, this is an unhappy time. And it's, it's it's tragic that it is because it's a time when really concerted action is, is needed because we are at very serious tipping points with the climate, with technology, uh, and, and we shouldn't be arguing with one another and, and uh, competing. We should be working together.
0: Well, these are wise words. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you very much indeed. And I'll just say a few words in closing, uh, but I hope that people uh, will get a chance to get out there and get your book when it's published in February. So look out for that, everyone.